It's a beautiful day and a fine time for healing. Podcast host Randy Fine, a narcissistic abuse expert and the author of the groundbreaking book Close Encounters of the Worst Kind and the captivating memoir Cliff Edge Road, invites you into her sanctuary, a place where your physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being are all that matter. So put your feet up, relax, and enjoy today's show. And now, here's Randy. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to listen to A Fine Time for Healing. I am your show host, Randy Fine. Today I'm doing a show that is near and dear to my heart, and I am certain it is near and dear to many of yours. Research from the CDC shows that more than 60% of adults report having had at least one adverse childhood experience, and nearly 25% report three or more. The most prevalent are emotional abuse, parental separation or divorce, and household substance abuse. But other examples include physical abuse, domestic violence in the home, and emotional and physical neglect. It may sound odd, but many people who were victimized by their families don't fully realize it until they are well into adulthood. And I'm sure many of you can relate to that. Growing up in a home with addiction and abuse creates very distinct and predictable dynamics. Today's special guests, sisters and survivors, Ronnie Tushner and Jenny Weaver, found a way to emerge from a tragic cycle of intergenerational trauma, trauma and abuse. The authors share it in their book, Healing Begins With Us, Bringing the Cycle of Trauma and Abuse and Rebuilding the Sibling Bond. Ronnie Tishner has a Ph.D. in sociology specializing in family studies from the University of Michigan. Jenny Weaver received her degree from the Vanderbilt School of Nursing and is a board-certified family nurse practitioner with over 25 years of experience in family practice and mental health. And we have, fortunately, both Ronnie and Jenny with us today. So let's get started. Good morning, Ronnie. Good morning, Jenny. Good morning. Good morning, Randy. So your story is one of fairly extreme abuse. It's pretty extreme. And as I was reading this, I recognized a lot of the hallmarks of narcissistic abuse, but there was much, much more going on there. And I know that you, as children, it was a very, very difficult road to navigate. But here you are today as siblings, and you have repaired that relationship, which is a beautiful and miraculous thing. So let's just start off talking about the unrealistic expectations that are common with families with addiction and abuse. Wow, there are so many. Um, My apologies to you and your listeners. I'm a little hoarse from recovering from a cold. but um, okay. I, I think that some of the key hallmarks of addiction and abuse in the family are, first of all, the denial that anything terrible is actually happening. Everything's fine here. We're all normal. We're close. We're warm. We're a loving, happy family. Um, and then, of course, you're just living with those dynamics with a lot of fear because uh, you don't know what's going to happen next. A lot of isolation. You try to lay low and stay out of the out of firing range as children, um, you end up being pigeonholed into uh, various roles. In our case, I was the hero as the oldest. It was my job to carry all the family's hopes and dreams, to um, provide the distraction from outsiders who might look at the family and think there was something wrong. Our parents could always point to me and say, hey, look at this kid. She's a star student. She's a phenomenal musician. There's nothing wrong with us because we produce this great kid. Um, Jenny had a very different role. I'll let her tell you about that. I was the um, the third of, of the three children in the family, and I was the identified um, problem. I was the scapegoat. That was the role that was defined for me. And later... In, in life, around my, my freshman year of high school, I, I was blessed with, with a few 
really comical friends that helped me learn to laugh at myself and to use humor to diffuse tension. And so unwittingly, I, I took on a bit of the mascot role, which is another role in um, addicted and, and abusive families. Um, so as, as the scapegoat, the whole role for, of the scapegoat is to basically be the garbage can for the family. All of the family trash is dumped on the scapegoat. And actually my family's joke was everything would be fine with us if we could just find a big enough trash can for Jenny to get her crap together in. Um, and so, so basically, you know, even, even, even though at times I, I might have excelled in music um, as a vocalist or whatever, whatever accomplishments I may have, you know, achieved, they really were totally diminished by the, by the perpetual message that I received daily that I was, I was a mess. I was worthless. And, and, and the, and the message came through loud and clear that I didn't matter. And so that's what I was steeped in, you know, from as, as early as my role was defined, which was, you know, probably well before the age of five, I'm sure. Um, and, and so these are the dynamics that when, I, when we talk about our story and, and the, really the, the, the miraculous way that we came together as sisters to, to start helping each other come out of our denial, um, I, I always think about, you know, we were who we were, you know, uh, our identities, who we were meant to be, whatever our souls intended, were, were pretty much hijacked to a great degree um, because of the trauma and abuse that we were indoctrinated into. Yeah, the scapegoat really, really takes on all the animosity of the of the parents it's a horrible thing i was the golden child and the caretaker placator child my role was very different Mm -hmm. but i had a sister who was a scapegoat and the other was an invisible child Um, and these Mm -hmm. roles these assignments stuck with them throughout life i mean my sister who was a Mm -hmm. scapegoat child felt like a loser most of her life. It wasn't yeah. until she was in her late fifties, approaching 60 that she finally rose out of it. But you live, <clears throat> you live down to that assignment. So if you're told yeah. that you're a scapegoat child or treated as a scapegoat, you live down to that. You be, you believe you're a loser and that's how your life reflects everything. So it's miraculous to me that you have come out of it. And it's not an easy thing. And you say there's um, so many things that just hit home for me because of the work I do and because of my background. But you say on page 20, the very beginning of the book, under the title, Not Enough Love to Go Around. What I figured, what I discovered is that by the time children come into one of these families, they're already crowded out because the parents are so involved, enmeshed in their dance of toxicity and confusion that there really is mm-hmm. no room for children. What are your feelings on that? Oh, absolutely. There, there was, you know, the, the emphasis was always on what our parents were feeling, what they, their frustration, their anger, their explosions. Um, we were who were never encouraged to certainly talk about our feelings. And in fact, you know, as, as many people that grow up in these abusive homes, you know, the, the message we received is if you, you know, you want to cry, I'll give you something to cry about. So you knew very early on that you weren't supposed to make waves. You weren't supposed to take up space. You weren't supposed to voice really any of your feelings because it, it meant a beating. It meant you, you, were, you, were, you were an irritation to your parents, and the whole job was to try to figure out what would not irritate them. What, what can I do that will not make them explode, you know, keep them from the next explosion? And that's, your, that's what your whole life revolves around. You are in a constant state of fight or flight, hypervigilance, and learning how to read people and how to read the room. 
And so it does, it does hone your intuitive and empathic abilities in terms of reading your abusers. And it's, it's a sad way to live. It's a very lonely way to live. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a survival one of the survival skills that we learn in these families, and because Absolutely. because the maladaptive coping mechanisms we develop children because we don't have any to really we don't know how to deal with this, we take these into adulthood, and so many people recovering actually most adult children of narcissistic abuse, I think there has not been one that I've worked with that has not had empathic sensitivity. And you just explained that very, very well. So you talk about uh, how things went on behind closed doors, but never really in front of other people. This is really where narcissists operate. Would you consider that one or other, one or both of your parents were narcissistic? Oh, definitely. Yes. We, yeah, we, we actually, our father. Yeah. When we, when we were making our last ditch attempt to try to break through the denial with our parents and our, our brother who was in between us was the invisible child in the family. He just tried to disappear and, and not make waves, but um, he was not really involved in this process at all. But Ronnie and I took, you know, this attempt to, um, to break through the denial at least about the addiction, at least about the alcoholism in the family, which our father was the identified alcoholic. Um, and Ronnie, I should, I, I'm probably getting ahead of myself, but Ronnie wrote a letter to the family to try, you want to you go ahead and, and share what your feelings were sure, at the time, I, Ronnie? This was, well, I, I tried to just call out all the problems in the family. I tried, you know, in the days before email and cell phones and FaceTime, a letter seemed like the best way to do it. So I just laid out what I thought the problems were and tried to get our parents to, and our brother, to agree that there were problems and that we would work on them together. And it, they just blew up. It was, it was very, uh, it, you know, <laughs> as a hero, I thought I could fix anything. So Jenny was the one who was really getting to a breaking point with our parents. They just continued to be more hostile and abusive to her as she got married and had children. And um, I was the one who thought I could fix it because she wanted to walk away. And I was still clinging to this idea that we were a close, warm, loving family. Here we are in our late 20s, early 30s. And so I wrote this letter that really did nothing but enrage them. And so as Jenny said, we tried uh, one last effort to schedule or uh, intervention with our father, just the two of us. And it was then that we took the letters that went back and forth between us and our parents and our brother to these counselors to try to plan the intervention. And they were the ones to say, looks to me like your father's a narcissist and your mother's a raging borderline personality. It was was a a big hill to try to climb. And in the end, we weren't successful. And we had to make the choice to protect ourselves and our children to break contact with our parents and our brother. And that was several decades ago. Yeah, I'm sort of in the same boat. When you write a letter to a narcissist, they read an entirely different letter. They don't see what's on the page. They read into it. They look for any accusations, anything where, you're, where they're not being told that they're perfect or wonderful. And they mm-hmm. attack you based on that. So nothing that you say, nothing that appeals to their sensitivity is going to work because they don't have that sensitivity. They have no empathy. They cannot feel your experience at all. And that's maddening. And I know that I think we all try to do this last-ditch effort, you know, thinking, okay, we're going to be reasonable because our minds are logical. Our minds are reasonable. And we assume that we're looking at another human being with the same kind of set of um, a mindset, and that is not true. They look the same as we do, but their brains don't operate as ours do. And so this is very, very, um, it, it gets to be very frustrating. So, yeah. let's see. So try, you said something else that I was trying, going to tap into. 
I guess it'll come back to me. Tell us a little bit about, I know that they moved you from a fairly comfortable, physically comfortable, logistically comfortable home environment to a nightmare of a home. Can you tell us about that? Well, I'll, I'll jump in. They, um, our dad had separated for a few months from our mother and wanted a divorce. And, um, and, and at the same time, we talk about in the book how he told Ronnie that he wanted her, but made, told my brother and I that he didn't want us. He didn't want us living with him. Um, and, it, and so there was a lot of certainly upheaval. Um, and as part of their coming back together and deciding that they would give their marriage another try, um, it, it, the next plan was my dad wanted to write. So they would sell their home in a, in, and move to this really remote um, area and, and homestead and farm. And so um, that's what they did. And it, it, was, it, it became a real mess, of course. Uh, it was an old homestead um, house that needed a tremendous amount of work, did not even have an indoor bathroom. Um, but did have water that was hooked up to a kitchen sink. Um, and it was so salty, there, there but was it was salt tr- water. It was salt water, right? Oh, yeah. It wasn't even drinking water. Right. right. And, and, they, and they didn't realize it when they bought the farm because the, the person had lied to them. So, so yeah, it became, a, it became a two-year slog of trying to make the house inhabitable and, because this was a very cold climate where we were. The winters were incredibly harsh. Um, and so it was, it was a... It was a two-year slog. Now, this was just before Ronnie's senior year, and just and it was the beginning of my freshman year. So we lived there, uh, and and had sheep and goats and a couple of horses and uh, did hauled water uh, and for the two years that we lived there, and it was heated with wood. It was a very rustic existence and. And the whole time, of course, our parents were trying to spin this whole new, we're a very loving, close family. Look how we've come together on this farm. And, and at times, of course, when they would break down and, and say that they made a terrible mistake, you know, it was our job to come, to come rushing in and say, no, you're wonderful parents. This, is a, this was a great idea. We love it here. We're, you know, it, it, it was always our job to bolster them and, and, attend to their emotional needs and we didn't dare express any any discouragement or or any type of dissatisfaction with with our our predicament we just had to grin and and tell them how wonderful they were and how how wonderful it was that we moved there and yeah right and you talk about how the room that you two shared or whatever it was that was made into a room, what, there was no insulation and it was like 40 degrees below zero outside and there was frosting, frost on your walls. And in the summer, you were so hot that one time you, you just went to, down to your parents' room because they had an air conditioner, of course, and you were kicked out. You're not allowed to be in there. So I know what I wanted to say before, when you talk about how the two of you tried to bring in your other siblings and and really make everybody see what's going on, what happens in these situations is that when one or two children heal or decide they're going to pull themselves up and start setting boundaries, the other ones move in closer to the abuser. Mm Mm-hmm. It's their opportunity because in these families, there's only crumbs to go around. And so when you start sort of giving up your crumbs, they want them. They want more. Mm -hmm. And they get more and more sick. They get more and more closer and closer to the abusive parent. And they often do not ever get out, which is, you know, what happened in my family. So the narcissistic family is not a family at all, but we are made to believe that it is. 
we're told all the time, we're a family, we're loyal, we love you. We're told all the things that we're supposed to hear. But when you have a parent that's a narcissist, you don't have a family. Because as you said, as we talked about at the beginning, everybody's in their own corner figuring out how to deal with this. And so there is no cohesiveness. But tell us about the triangulation that went on and how your father or mother kept you and your and you know the two of you apart what kind of things did they do well it was in our case with our mother our mother was the one that controlled all the communications again this is back in the days before the internet and cell phones and so on so um calls were expensive and we would call home to talk to our parents like once a week but not we would not call each other and even if we were home, our mother would never put us on the phone to talk to a sibling. So she very deliberately kept us apart, and that allowed her to tell us anything she wanted about what each of us were doing. And so she would outright lie about things. Um, you know, we wouldn't find out two years later. There was a time when I said um, to Jenny, I said, you know, Mom told me about the time you did X, and that really upset me that you would – you know, behave in that way. And she's like, oh, wait a minute. That never happened. Let me tell you what really went down. Um, or there was a time when Jenny and I finally started communicating with each other directly, and my mother tried to tell me a lie. And I said, oh, wait, no. I heard that this is what happened. And my mother stopped short, and she said, oh, I see you've been talking to your sister <laughs> as if it were some terrible thing. Right. But she knew the game the game was up once we were talking to each other. That was very bad for her. It's interesting that as adults when you begin to compare notes, because often there's so much animosity between siblings that they don't. They just hate each other. And as you compare notes, what we found, what I found with my sisters is that that we were all told the same story, but it was slanted completely different for each of us. Mm-hmm. So how we were expected to react to how, whatever she was saying. But we were all told, don't tell your sisters this is just between you and me. So then you feel like you're special. Mom's keeping you close. Mm-hmm. Mom's, you know, you, you have this special bond. You have this secret. And so, therefore, you're not going to betray mom. You're going to betray your siblings, and you're going to believe mom or dad in, you know, whatever case that is. And it is so destructive. And adult children who come to me, they don't understand why their family is so messed up. But it doesn't start in adulthood. It starts in childhood. Yeah. Your mother, you said you were saying in the, in the book that your mother had a closet of beautiful things and she was always buying herself things and that she never bought you anything like you use this example um, Ronnie was growing out of her bras mom had just bought all this sexy lingerie and she gave Ronnie her old Playtex 18 hour bras <laughs> and that was all you had you know yeah I and they were bringing in money they were bringing in money but yes. but yes. they were not spending mm-hmm. it on you correct right. that's true that was hard to see that was really hard to, to watch but we couldn't complain, of course. Now, you suffered emotional, of course, mental, psychological, but you also suffered physical abuse, didn't you, both of you? Yes. Okay. And what was worse, in your opinion, emotional abuse or physical abuse? Well, I, I would say all of it, but I, I do know without a doubt that the physical abuse um, and the molesting issues that, that I experienced as a child caused me to dissociate from my body to the point that as an adult, I, because, you know, our dad would tell me I was lazy if I didn't lift something as heavy as he could or move as fast as you know, work as hard, work as long, you know, and so I have been very driven to prove that I'm not lazy. I've torn rotator cuff muscles in both shoulders, both deltoid muscles, my right bicep, 
I've injured my back multiple times by by because I didn't feel the pain at the time of the injury. And I I I know, of course, now that that my ridiculously high threshold for pain is related to the beatings. And I was conditioned to dissociate from the pain and dissociate from my body. And that, along, of course, with the emotional trauma, is, I think, a travesty to do that to to a child. It's all horrible. So you had really all, you had the whole gamut of abuse. You had everything. Yes, yes. Did you, were you... Did you ever, um, did anyone ever see bruises or notice anything, that, you know, that you were being beaten? Or was it always hidden in places where people couldn't it, see it? It was always hidden. It was always hidden. I did, we did see bruises and welts on our brother's back of his legs, you know, um, at, at one time after a beating. But typically the, the, it was, the beatings were in areas where people would not see and I can't tell you how sorry I am I know that you've recovered I know that you've healed I know that you've moved beyond this and you wrote this book because you want to share this with other people right we want we I think we we wanted to fully fully love and accept all of who we are including what happened to us you know we were innocent children and and sadly our culture still still blankets the shame on the survivor and and we we both felt really called to share our story because the shame was never ours to carry and we want to help others to heal and our our bond as sisters and the love and support that we've that we've given to each other has just tremendously accelerated the arc of our healing process and of course we're still on that we're still rediscovering you know all of who we are and 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 giving ourselves permission to be all of who we are and and it just felt like it was the right time to share this story to hopefully help others find healing yes we also we also know that there are there's a lot of good work out there on childhood trauma and healing from childhood trauma and people with very important messages around that. And what we really didn't see was anybody talking about the damage that's done to the sibling relationship, how it's not your fault you don't get along with your siblings, um, and how, how wonderful, how important it can be to heal that relationship and to, and as Jenny said, that that relationship can be not just beautiful in and of itself, but can be helpful in your healing process as an individual. And we just really felt that was an important message. To it is. It's, it's a very important message. I mean, I talk about it. I write about it. There's, I talk about it in my book, Close Encounters of the Worst Kind, because I've experienced it. <clears throat> and it is very confusing for people because most of the clients who come to me uh, are confused about why their family, why why they're trying to get better and their siblings don't want to hear it. And, I mean, I hear this story all the time. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sorry that you haven't been able to find much on that. I try to write about it as much as I possibly can. Um, what did I want to say? So, you were saying, and you said this so perfectly and eloquently, you, your job was to blanket the shame. And it's really hard to change the way that you think about that. It's very hard to not take responsibility, to not feel guilty, because everything was blamed on you as children, right? Yes. Yeah, we were made responsible for our parents' emotions in particular. If they were angry, they could always figure out um, a reason why it was our fault. And they would look for, I mean, they would beat us sometimes for the most ridiculous things. They were clearly looking for a way to unleash their anger and frustration. And, you know, we were the targets. 
Yes, of course you are. You don't matter. Nobody matters. Uh, <laughs> except them. They're the only ones that matter. Mm-hmm. So what was the first step that you both took in trying to repair this relationship? I think it really started I, when we had children. Um, we, are, we each had a daughter not quite a year and a half apart, and we were, that's when we first started talking to each other and talking about, oh, my God, what, this is a big deal being a mom, and I want to be the best mom I possibly can, and how can I do that? And that inevitably led us to talk about what happened to us as children and what we wanted to emulate, we did not. And that was really the very beginning of any kind of conversation between us. It was really about trying to figure out how to be a good mom. And I, and I know that the two of you, you did try to stay close. When one of you went to college, the other would spend time. And you did try. It was definitely dissuaded but, uh, and, and criticized. But... You definitely tried to keep that together. Was there a point in which there was kind of a break between the two of you that, you know, you just couldn't seem to find a common ground? I don't think so. I think we, we certainly, there were, there were points along our journey when Ronnie would come home from college, when we would connect and we would talk uh, because we shared a room and but it, it really didn't. It really didn't start to cement because we would always fall back into the family dynamics of our mother controlling all communication. Um, it, our, our relationship really didn't start to cement until, and we talk about it in the book. Um, the weekend that my sister and Ronnie invited me to come visit, uh, she was teaching at her alma mater, and her daughter was with her, and my daughter was eight months old, and she said, "Just." My husband at the time was in Saudi Arabia um, during Desert Storm. And so she, Ronnie, just, you just kept pressuring, pressuring me, come see me, come see me, come see me. And I really, I really believe that intuitively she knew that something was really wrong with me. Um, and I was struggling with, with postpartum depression. And my parents were working on me almost every day to try to convince me to divorce my husband. And I was in a really dark place, um, but I knew I needed to keep trying um, because of my daughter. My daughter needed me. And so I had entered back into counseling, I, and I went to see Ronnie that weekend. And from the moment I walked through the door, Ronnie, for the first time, it, it was like a, a huge veil lifted, and the, we broke through the denial that weekend. And she said, Jenny, what is wrong? And I chose to be vulnerable with her and, and I, to take this huge risk and tell her what was going on. And she was completely receptive, supportive, loving, and, said, and started talking about how our parents treated her differently than they treated me, that, you know, she even used the words, you know, Jenny, a therapist would say that you're the identified patient in our family. You're the one with all the problems, and it's not true. And it just was a huge, miraculous gift that weekend. And we made a pact that weekend. We promised that we would talk to each other weekly, which was a big deal because that was before cell phones. So, and the only time that I really had time alone was during the day. So that's premium phone, phone call time, you know. So we started calling each other, and, and that's when we were talking about our children. I was talking about how my parents were treating me. Um, we were swapping ideas about parenting books that we were, or videos that we were, we were reading and, and watching. And, and that was really where our relationship took a major turn for the better. So your children really were a motivation for you to, to heal this relationship. And for me, it was the same thing when I had my first child. That's when I decided this was not, I was not going to carry this legacy any further. 
because my I'm yes. the youngest, and my other my other sisters never had kids, so I'm the only one that had kids. And I decided it stops with me. It's stopping yes. with me. Um, and it's so important to do that. I I say to people, if you can't do it for yourself, at least do it for your children, because people, you know, it's misunderstood that. You can hide the pain of your past, that you can hide what is unaddressed and unhealed, but you can't. Children pick up on all of those things, and if you don't have boundaries, your children don't have boundaries. If you're quick to anger, your children are quick to anger, and all the, you know, post-abuse issues that uh, that happen, uh, that you can't help it because they're built into you. So, right. you know, I, I think I really, really um, commend both of you for getting together for the sake of your children and really for, I mean, for both of you as well. But it was a good motivation. So what did you do different? I mean, each of you have children. So I know I did. If I, if I had an instinct, I would do the opposite. <laughs> That's how I did it. If I said my mother did it this way. I did it the opposite, and my kids came out great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that, for me, one of the the key things was really trying to pay attention to um, how I spoke to my daughter. Because um, our mother, you know, our parents would tell us that they loved us, but then they would take it back with all the ways in which they would treat us as if we were incompetent or a disappointment. And you can do that without saying a word, right? Just the way you look or, a, you know, a huff or a heavy sigh. Oh, yeah. So I, I tried, yeah. So I tried very hard to to pay attention to her and make her feel like she mattered, that she was not an inconvenience mm-hmm. that, or an annoyance. So that was one of the things I really focused on early on with her. Mm. Yeah, the uh, other, I would say the other big thing is apologizing, like recognizing when I when I had or harmed her. Because one thing our parents would never do is acknowledge when they harmed us. As we were getting close to the break, we that we made with them, we tried to um, we tried to point out what they were doing, and they just would not acknowledge it. They would say things like, "Well, I never meant to harm you, therefore you were not hurt," and um, I just, you know, owned my mistakes as, you know, as much as I could be aware of them. I'm sorry. I'll try to do better, uh, try to develop a sense of humor. I remember when my daughter was really little, I had a strategy. If we were just got off on the wrong foot and things just went from bad to worse, I would just stop and say, how about if we start our day over? And she would say, okay. I would say, good morning, honey. How are you? How did you sleep? No matter what time of day it was. And we would just try to get back on track. So it's, I mean, it's hard because, as you said, there's an instinct there. There is an old, well-worn record. And you got to cut new grooves. And it takes years to do that. And it's hard. Mm-hmm. And you feel like you're coming unglued on the inside sometimes. But it's so worth it. There's just no other way forward. It's so true. I know yeah. my daughter was my, my first child. She's my oldest. And... I remember she was three years old. I used to, I had an anxiety problem, terrible, and and so much anger. I mean, I'm not that way at all anymore. People would never believe it. But anything she did, I would always freak out. You know, if she spilled something, I'd scream. Everything I reacted to. And she started talking to me. She was sweet, sweet, sweet as sugar, so sweet. And she would tell me about her dreams. And, Mommy, when last night I had a dream, and she's telling me the story, and, and every time, and you were angry at me. And I thought, oh, my God, what am I doing to this child? Her subconscious, what am I doing? She's dreaming about this. I took myself right to a psychiatrist. <laughs> I said, yeah. something's wrong with me. I need to fix this. Uh, and and I did, and it was not an easy thing to do, but I fixed it. And I have apologized her for, to her for years for this. And she said, it's not what you did wrong, Mom. It's the fact that you, you cared enough to get it right. Yeah, exactly. And children, children are very exactly. forgiving. 
They really are. They don't hold grudges on about this. No, that's true. Uh, so if somebody is trying to recognize the, the family dynamics that happen in a family where there's abuse or addiction, you know, it's, it's very confusing to some people because sometimes – the person with the personality disorder also has an addiction. And so you tend to look at the addiction and miss the personality disorder because most people don't know about that. So how do you, what family dynamics do you recognize if this is going on in your family, our family, whatever? Yeah. Well, I think, I think a really, a really key um, indication, and Ronnie, Ronnie and I have said this a number of times, is if your family is a repeated source of pain for you, that, that's, a, that's a big red flag right there. Um, it's, it's interacting with your family members. It is causing you pain. So, something's wrong there. Um, and there are so many wonderful resources available um, even more than even more now than 30 years ago when we started our recovery process. But there are there are groups like Al-Anon and Adult Children of Alcoholics, and and there are books out there that you can read about the family dynamics in an addicted home. Um, you know, and and certainly mental health counseling is a great place to start. For me, it was I knew that I was I kept finding myself in situations where I was at risk. You know, I had to talk my way out of being date raped. I had to, you know, on more than one occasion. And I'm like, why does this keep happening to me? And that is what sent me to counseling. It wasn't, oh, I recognize that my family has issues. It was, there were patterns that were recurring that I recognized at age 19 and said, you know, this, this is not good. And, and I already at that age knew I did not want a marriage like what my parents had. I did not want to marry a man like my father. So I, those are the things that triggered me to start down the path of counseling. And it was interesting, the first counselor I went to, and I was only able to go to her for a few months because I had to relocate to move back home. But one of, one of the things she asked me was, it, do, do, did you grow up in a home with, abuse you know and I was like no we're we're a close loving family no there's no problems there I I was not at all ready to look look under that rock but she was very aware of this you know after after a month of of counseling sessions with me so it, it I think it's also very important for people to to make sure that their counselor is is well versed in in addiction and abuse issues. If you have any inkling that somebody in the family is abusing a substance or, or you're just not sure, it, it, it's sad, but in our country, counselors do not have to be trained in addiction and abuse. And, and that's sad because it is so prevalent across and most of them, all right, socioeconomic and, classes. And most of yeah. them are not trained because that's, I get people after, you know, after they've been shamed and blamed by therapists who are having them take responsibility or asking them to take responsibility for their part in this or asking them to, that they really need to try to make amends or they need to forgive and apologize. And, and that is like a, it's like a dagger in the heart of somebody who's coming out of a situation like this where they, they're not to blame. So there's exactly. a big, big, there's, there's a huge area that needs to be fixed in the mental health care system. There really is. Yes. <sighs> yes. yes. I see that all the time. And you were fortunate to find somebody who, who did understand, who could see through it. That's really what it takes. It takes, because I was 42 before I realized anything was wrong with my family. I thought we had a loving family and it was a disaster. It was horrible. So, and then even when I began to realize it, it, it was, it, I kept going into cognitive dissonance. I kept going backwards and thinking, no, 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 no. But, but mom did this, but then she did this, 
the mom said right. that. So right. let's talk about the intermittent reinforcement, the the good guy, bad guy game that they play. Um, did your mom or dad do this? I'm sure. I'm sure that they did. But w- all, was all it confusing? <laughs> right? Was it confusing that they threw threw you a bone every once in a while and you hold on to that? Yeah. I mean, we know that they made sacrifices for us. I mean, when we were very young, they had not much money at all. But they would do things like scrape together money for, like I took piano lessons for 10 years, um, and I know that was a financial sacrifice for them. Um, so we we know they, you know, they would do things like that. And to be fair, I think that, I think there was, my mother in particular really, mattered to her to be a good mom. Um, but she, so I think she tried because um, we know she had her own trauma, as did our father. But she also, um, she also didn't really, I didn't have enough understanding, didn't really take responsibility for the things that she did do that were harmful. So, but like you said, it's a mixed bag. And that's what keeps you coming back is you think, well, it's not like they never said I love you. It's not like they didn't make some sacrifices for me um, or help me at a time when I really needed it. But that doesn't erase all the damage that they did. Right. And and helping you at a time you really need it, this is, this is a way to keep you hooked. I mean, this is one of the tactics that narcissistic parents and abusive parents use to keep you on the hook is they come and they rescue you. They do great things for you when you need it. And then it's very hard because you say to yourself, how, how can I, like I would say to myself, how can I, I, I don't like my mother, but how can I not? She rescued me at the worst time of my life, you know, but they know what they're doing. They know it keeps you beholden. So, yes, parents, um, abusive parents will do good things from from time to time. But like my sister, who was the invisible child, she was given piano lessons, and she took them for many, many years. It was part of my mother's glory to have her play for people. There's there's often a self-serving motive. And I know one of you sing, right? We both do. Mm -hmm. Okay, right. And so your mom wanted you to be famous, that this was going to be her glory, that she had right. daughters that sang or a daughter that sang. And so it's confusing. And while we do want to give our parents credit for the things that they do, it's, I think it's important to examine the motivation for why they do it. Because I know in particular, narcissistic parents have no ability to love. It's just not there. It's not an emotion that they can carry, they can express, they can feel. They just can't. It's part of the disorder. Um, But they will say they love you. So I think the most important thing is that actions must match words. If you're being told, I love you, and then they're beating the shit out of you, Um, yeah, then, that's a then, problem. Yeah. You know, then it's like, um, but then you begin to associate love with that. And then when you go into your adult relationships and you have an abuser, it feels normal. It feels natural. And one of the things that you said about you realized that things weren't working right in your life. My life was a train wreck when I left home. Train wreck. One thing after another, after another, after another. And it wasn't until I realized this was, I was set up for this. When, you don't, when you're not given the proper tools for growing up in a, in a home like this, when you're not given boundaries and coping mechanisms right. and, you know, those kind of things, you, get, you become an adult who doesn't have those things, and then you plummet in life. It's very, very difficult to navigate yes. the process. So that is a very good point, that as you know, when you see that your life is not working, um, that's a time to begin to examine. But there's, then there's the guilt. Then there's the guilt. How can I not love my parents? I don't love them. I can't stand the sight of them. But how can I not? This goes against everything that society says I'm supposed to do. Did you both struggle with that? Oh, definitely. Um, and I, and I, and the, the, I think. The funny thing is, 
I still I still love them. I try to remember, you know, the the good things that I inherited because we didn't inherit all horrible things from our our family of origin. But but I I think I have forgiven them to the as 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 fully as I can at this point as a human being. Um, but I do hold them accountable for the choices that they made and the choices that they made behind closed doors. I hold them accountable for that because we, you know, we, we did not sign up for this abuse. We did not deserve this abuse. And, and I, I realized that, you know, even though they are, they are human beings that have value, I cannot have anything to do with them. I will not have anything to do with them. And that's where a lot of people get, bogged down in forgiveness and reconciliation. You know, you can forgive someone and you need to forgive someone for your own healing of your heart. But reconciliation requires two different parties recognizing what the problems are, having remorse, and working on it together. And that can never happen in, in a family where abuse and addiction has been perpetuated and is, is not acknowledged. Yeah. That's the so other true. piece of this is that is that um, for me it was easier to to navigate the I love my parents and I forgive them but I can't be around them anymore than it has been to navigate people in the world asking me about my parents. Where are your parents? Are they still living? How often do you see your parents? Like the shaming yeah. that goes on when you tell people you don't have contact with them is pretty high. And it's difficult to navigate. I'm glad that you brought that up. That is a very big piece of it. It's people don't understand, and I know there were times before I figured out how to do this right um, that I was brought to tears by people, because what happens is, you know, it, they ask you something, you say something, and then before you know it, you're going down a rabbit hole, and you're looking like you're defending yourself, and right. yeah. You know, and then they look at you like you're unbalanced and uh, unresolved. And I've been told I was unresolved, even though I was. But you learn that you just don't talk about this with people or you find you develop canned kind of answers for that. Like, right. like when people ask me how my parents are doing, oh, they're doing fine. That's all I say. Oh, they're doing fine. Right. Right. I don't mm-hmm. I don't get into it. I really don't. There's no point. I there's, I don't have to explain it, and no one's going to understand it. And you learn that pretty quickly that you can't right. really tell people about this. Uh, did you struggle with – a lot of people struggle with this. And, oh, I'm glad that you were talking about the forgiveness. And it, There are ways that we can forgive and not allow these people in our lives. I mean, and you were saying – we can honor our parents for the fact that they were the vessels that brought us here. I mean, there's yes. things that we can yes. find that make them honorable, but it doesn't mean that they have to be in our lives. And forgiveness is, is a tough thing, but it's very important. I agree with you. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Where did you, besides each other, where did you find comfort and support? No, I would say our husbands. We both were very fortunate to marry wonderful, loving, sensitive, and kind men that were very supportive. And I think, you know, for me, I will say it it is still very hard for me to let people in, to let people get close to me. So I have a few close friends that know only – the highlights. Um, if they read me a book, of course, they'll know more. But um, it having having people that love you and support you, who who see you as you as you are, without hiding parts of you, is very important. And that has been another another layer of healing for me personally. Right there. Yeah, there is a silver lining in all of this, as there is in every adverse experience we 
we have in life. I know what the silver lining was for me. Have you found it, either of you? I would think definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, go ahead, Jen. Go ahead, Ronnie. (laughs) You you go, Ronnie. I was was just going to say that I, um, for years now, I I teach a course called Power and Violence in the Family, um, where I teach about these dynamics, and I try to raise awareness of, um, because I have people that will go into professions where they'll need to know this, because I've encountered people with abusive backgrounds, but also just so they can be beautiful lights in the world and recognize a child who's struggling or an adult friend who maybe has a background they haven't fully embraced, something of what's happened to them and how important they can be as a form of support. And, you know, I continue to grow in my ability to share my story. It's only been the last couple of years that I've actually shared with my students that I have this same background. I always felt like I needed to keep some kind of professional boundary, and it just it seemed like too much. But I, now, that I've, now that I share more, my students are so appreciative, and I think it deepens their empathy and their compassion to have somebody that they look at as a success share where they've come from because so many of them have similar experiences, and I think it gives them hope. It's, it's so true. I think it's important to be vulnerable with people who are going through this. I think it's okay. I don't think it's unprofessional because you feel very alone. People, when, when someone's going through this kind of horrific abuse recovery, they feel very alone. They feel like they're the only ones in the world. And they don't, and they cannot see the forest for the trees. They can't see beyond where they are. And I think it's really important to be vulnerable with people and let them know, hey, I get it. I was there. I know how you're feeling. I know it on a personal and professional level. And, you know, I know how to lead you to a better place. I think that's very, very important. I know that I share that with all of my clients, uh, well, if, if I'm asked, I don't just bring it up, but if I'm asked, and I did publish my memoir and told my story so that people can see, because I think it's important for people to see the cycle of how we get to this point in our adulthood that we just don't understand. Yeah. Why am I having these terrible relationships? Why am I having one abusive relationship after another after another? Why are these things breaking me? What's wrong with me? What am I doing? People say, what did I do to deserve this? All these kind of things that people say. And so who was, who, who was I? Who was just telling me about the silver lining? I, which one of you? Oh, it's me, Ronnie. Ronnie. Okay, okay. All right, Jenny, do you have one? I, I think for me it's been being in a place where I've, over the last 26 years, I've had patients coming in for migraine headaches, back pain, anxiety, any, any number of, of symptoms, and, and suddenly they're breaking down telling me about their abusive background or abusive relationship they, they are in or, um, you know, similar traumatic adverse childhood experiences, and, and I've heard it many times, uh, them saying, I don't know why I'm telling you this. I haven't talked to anybody about this, or maybe my, my partner knows, but I haven't talked to anybody else about this. And I've, I've always responded with, I, I feel very humbled that you feel safe to share this with me. And, it was, and I always tell them, it was not, this, none of this was your fault. You did not deserve you know, to, to be treated this way and what happened to you or what is happening to you. And, and being in a place where I can hold space for someone and, and help guide them and give them good counseling services and, and, and other, other, other you know, outreach programs for them to be an instrument of helping someone else on their path of healing for me, the silver lining. Yes, yes. I find that the growth potential from this kind of background is tremendous. It really propels us to be better 
people to be more secure, more resilient people. I think that that really helps. And I know that, you know, I don't know what your answer is to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Knowing what you know now and how far you've come from your experience, if you had to do it again, would you? For, for the growth, for, for the result, end result. I don't think that I would knowingly walk into abuse, um, that I would knowingly say, yep, I'm signing up for that. I, I, I think that we, we, we talk about the resilience, but we, we don't talk about the cost of that resilience. And it, it, it's an ongoing healing process. I am living a life of, of love and support and um, I'm in a very loving marriage for 35 years, and I'm, I feel very blessed uh, with my four children and my three grandchildren. But it has been a long road. Mm-hmm. And I, I, would, I would say that I certainly wouldn't knowingly choose abuse. Right. Um, That's I think understandable. There are, yeah, many ways to learn and many ways to grow in love and um, yeah, so I, I think the most important thing out of this is to is to grow in love, not just self-love and nurturing and healing myself, but loving others and and helping others on their path of healing. Thank you. That's that's so well said. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I would agree with Jenny that I don't think you have to choose abuse to grow, but I will say that. I am so very proud of both of us. I'm very proud to be Jenny's sister. I'm proud of what we've done with what we were given. And I, you know, I watch our children and our grandchildren with joy that what we wanted to do all those years ago was to give them something better to break the cycle, that we were able to do that. And there's truly nothing special about us. Anybody who really wants to do this, who, you know, can seek the resources, find the support, I mean, I truly believe that this healing is available to anyone, and that's why it's so important for us to share our journey with you all. And Yes, and thank you so much for doing that. So we're talking... Um, Today about your book, Healing Begins With Us, Breaking the Cycle of Trauma and Abuse re- and Rebuilding the Sibling Bond. Um, Ronnie and Jenny, um, is there? did you want to share a website um, and share where this book can be purchased? The book is available on Amazon. We also recorded um, an audible uh, format. On, you can get, uh, get the uh, audio book on iTunes or Audible. Uh, dot com and then our website is www dot ronnie and jenny r o n n i a n d j e n n i e dot com and you can have access to all of our content and links to our podcast and as well our, as our book on our website. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Um, is there a message that either of you would like to leave with us? Leave us with today. I think it's really important for any any survivor to to learn to trust your inner guidance, to learn to trust that inner voice and to follow it on your path of healing and and to know that you can nurture and love yourself in the ways that you did not receive what you needed as a child and that you deserve to live a life of love and peace. Thank you. Wow. That's perfect. I'm going to leave it there. (laughs) Thank you so much for being my guest today and telling your story, being this vulnerable, opening up, and giving us really some encouragement as to how we can move forward in our lives under similar circumstances. So uh, it's been really wonderful talking with you both today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us, Randy. You're welcome. Have a wonderful day. Take care. You too. Okay, bye-bye.
So we are out of time today, but if you have any comments or questions, you can email me at randy at randyfine.com. May joy and serenity always be yours. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Visit randyfine.com, R-A-N-D-I-F-I-N-E.com, and be sure to sign up to receive updates on the latest blog posts, events, and upcoming shows. Thank you for listening.